we find that every summer has a little bit different feel to it. This is what our summer looks like this summer. We have here the neighborhood gang. This is my uh, two kids. So my daughter, Julianne, is in the pink. And then my son, Isaac, is the three-year-old in the front. Uh, and then we have our neighborhood kids, Hannah there in the middle, and then Owen. And so this is what our summer looks like, many days in my house. And um, there, there's, what strikes me when I think about them is that they're such a mixed bag. But somehow it just works. They're just like a little family. And so literally day in and day out, they're playing at my house. We're sometimes playing in Hannah's uh, pool across the street. And um, they're so different. But, you know, you have, for example, Owen. Owen is a rising seventh grader. He's 11, and so you have a range from 3 to 11. But you have Owen, and Owen is one of those kids that just kind of runs and leaps from place to place. And Owen likes really tactile things. He likes our sandbox. He likes our magnetiles. And so that's Owen. Then you have Hannah in the middle. And uh, Hannah's family is Haitian-American. And Hannah loves to just randomly break out in song and dance. And she just, she just loves it. My daughter likes to sing as, as well, uh, but mostly she just likes all the company that she gets with this crew. And then, of course, you have Isaac there, little Isaac. And Isaac mostly just likes to climb on Owen. And um, Isaac also somehow becomes the monster in all of their imaginary games. So he really thrives in that role <laughs> as well. Um, but they have such an interesting vibe together. And somehow it just works because they realize, these four characters, they realize that they're better together than they are apart. And so anytime that it's time to wrap up the, the play, time to, for you to go home and be with your families and eat meals with them, you know, I'm kind of the fun police. And so I'm often met with moans, like, no, you can't send us home. Oh, they just love their little life together. But they have one common purpose, and that's having fun. That's having fun. Well, this morning we continue our series in Ephesians, and this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to another mixed bag, another diverse community, if you will, but a community with a common purpose. And Paul's focus in this letter, as we've seen, is the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, and all its variety. And like our little neighborhood crew that you see there, the, the church has always been a mixed bag. The church has always, from its inception, had rich people, poor people, contemplative people, action-oriented people. It's had diverse ethnicities, diverse races, thinkers, feelers. But by God's design, somehow this community comes together unified around a common purpose. Jesus Christ and his kingdom. 
A couple of weeks ago, Pastor JP talked to us about the unification of two groups that previously had had a dividing wall of hostility, keeping them apart, Jew and Gentile. And Pastor JP talked about how God's plan was the unification, the integration of these two groups in one new humanity. That Paul refers to as the mystery of God. The mystery of God. But Paul now goes beyond just that Jew-Gentile distinction. And, and Paul has in his scope, in his view, a community which is diverse in a number of different ways, yet unified around Christ. In our text this morning, Paul holds two things in tension. The first is our oneness as the people of God, as the church, our unity as the people of of God. But at the same time, Paul appreciates our diversity, the diverse ways that we are gifted and called in the diverse ministries that God has given us to carry out in this world. And so Paul envisions, and we envision as we look at this text, one body with many servants. My hope this morning is that as we look at this text, we'll have a greater commitment to the unity of the church the unity of the people of God. But at the same time, a greater appreciation for all of the different ways that God has gifted us and called us in our own lives. As we turn to the text, let us pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, call us to unity, call us to commitment to our life together, to be reconciled to one another, Lord, thank you also for the gifts that you've given your church and that you've given to us. Lord, help us to appreciate them in all their diversity, that we might be your people in this world. Lord, as we turn to this text, help us by your spirit to receive the message you have for us today and to live it out in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the first half of our text really stresses this unity, this Oneness. And, but notice how Paul starts. Notice verse 1. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's interesting that Paul doesn't shy away from his circumstances. Paul doesn't shy away from the fact that he is imprisoned. He is locked up. And that's interesting because as you read the New Testament letters, that at times is kind of a liability for Paul. People looked at that and they said, look, Paul's in chains. How can he be an apostle? How can he be sent by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to share the gospel? But in this relatively short letter, he alludes to his imprisonment, his circumstances, his struggle, at least four times. Scholars believe that Paul at this time was experiencing something like house arrest. He's in Rome, he's awaiting trial, and he's under house arrest. He's under a guard, but he can receive visitors, and he's probably reliant on the church at Rome to meet his needs. As I think about Paul's circumstances, as I think about his imprisonment and his 
sufferings. And then as I think about how this text plays out, you know, I can almost feel Paul saying, you know, church, listen, commitment to the gospel and to the church has gotten me locked up. Church, what has it cost you? What is it costing you these days? What is it costing you to stay unified to one another? He's saying, listen, I'm in chains. The least that you can do is love each other, is stay united. The reality for us is that being a disciple of Jesus, following him, will cost us something. It might cost us our time. It might cost us our money. It might cost us our plans and our dreams and our goals even, as God gives us his plans and dreams and goals for us. It might cost us our false idols. And the other thing that's going to cost us too is maintaining this unity that Paul's talking about. You might have to let go of the need to be right. You might have to let go of pride to maintain unity in the body. Paul is saying as he starts, church, what is it costing you? Well, their commitment to unity was one of the outflows of their calling. And what was their calling? Well, we've been looking at their calling over the last few weeks as we've been looking at this woven together series. Their calling was to be a community through which the wisdom of God was made known to the world. In other words, you, we all together as a community of faith manifest the wisdom of God in this world. That just blows me away. They were also called to be the fulfillment of this mystery that God had revealed in Jesus Christ and in the church. This joining of Jew and Gentile, this joining of diverse people into one body. And so Paul is saying to live faithfully that calling, to live in a manner worthy of the calling you have received, he says. He says, hey, relate to each other with love. Relate to each other with gentleness, humility, patience. And then Paul, to bolster this unity that he's describing, he talks to them about their common faith in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, Paul says. Just as you were called to one hope and you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, there's always been forces at work pulling the people of God apart. At the time of Paul, it was a number of things. At the time of Paul, people were divided over the joining of Jew and Gentile. Some people got upset about that. They thought that can't be right, but that was precisely what God was doing. Some people were divided uh, and led astray by false teaching. Some people were divided about whose follower they were. One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollo. So there was plenty of reasons for them to be pulled apart. Not much has changed for us. There's plenty of forces at work pulling us apart. Did you know, friends, that you might likely have a disagreement or a conflict with somebody else in this room at some point? You might have a conflict or a disagreement with somebody else in a different church, different corner of the body of Christ. Here at our church, here at Free 
Christian church, we believe in something called biblical peacemaking. This thought that we can actually glorify God, we can actually honor God in how we do conflict, because conflict is inevitable. I'm not encouraging you to have conflict, but conflict is inevitable. But in fact, we can honor God in how we deal with it. So God's design is to manifest his wisdom in this world. And in order to do that, Paul calls this church to unity, to their oneness. But after he affirms their unity and after he encourages the people to maintain that unity, it requires work, it requires effort, it requires intentionality. Paul then affirms the diversity of gifts in ministries as well. Verse 7 says, But to each of us, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. In verse 8, there, it's interesting, Paul is quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. And Paul takes that text and he applies it to Jesus, to the risen and ascended Jesus. And Paul is saying that as Jesus has now been ascended and as he is now reigning, he has also given gifts to his people to carry on his ministry on this earth. Paul is picturing Jesus who had not only disarmed all the powers of sin, all the powers of darkness in his death and in his Resurrection, but who then pours out gifts on us. It, it, it's like the image of a, of a, a king who's been victorious in battle, who now shares the spoils of war with his people. One expression of these gifts of grace, Paul then describes. Paul then describes the, what many refer to as the fivefold ministry. The fivefold ministry. And Paul's point is that each of these offices, each of these ministries, each of these roles are meant as a, an expression of God's gift to the church. He first mentions apostles. Apostle is taken from a Greek uh, verb that means to send. And so someone with apostleship is someone who is sent out, someone who is sent forth. Of course, Jesus has 12 disciples who are other. Other places referred to as his apostles. And Paul, who wrote our letter, was an apostle, and others named in the New Testament. He speaks of prophets. What's a prophet? Fundamentally, a prophet is one who speaks for God. So these are individuals gifted to speak forth truth, to bring clarity about God's guidance for the church. This often looks like speaking forth revelation, speaking forth God's word, sometimes by the Spirit, and maybe foretelling things to come. Interpreters, scholars, some folks like to debate that apostle and prophet are still active today. That maybe this isn't for today. And honestly, Jesus' 12 apostles and individuals like Paul, whose letter we're reading, they, they did have a unique calling. There was a unique endowment of authority on them to do what they were called to do. 
And so that early period, the apostolic period, as the scriptures are being written, as the church is being birthed, that was a unique time. But in my opinion, I think apostleship still exists in some sense. Apostles are those who are sent forth. Apostles are those who pioneer new ministry opportunities. Apostles are bridge builders, kingdom collaborators, if you will. I like to think of apostles as fire starters, but good fires, not bad ones. Getting things moving for the kingdom of God. And I would also say that the prophetic role still exists as individuals are raised up to bring the church clarity, to bring the church guidance from God. But I would say to you that prophetic ministry today is probably a little bit more humble than somebody getting on YouTube and saying, thus saith the Lord. So I don't recommend following that sort of thing, but prophetic ministry with humility. In, in, in both these cases, really in all these cases, evangelist, pastor, teacher, which we'll look at in a moment, all of these are things recognized by the church, affirmed by the church, and the fruit of their ministries validates them. The, the other three are maybe a little bit more familiar to you, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And I want to look with you at what each of these offices might ask. What each of the, uh, these offices might ask, to give you a little picture of what we're talking about. So the apostles might ask, what new ground are we breaking for the kingdom of God? What new ground are we breaking for the kingdom of God? What's the new thing? What's the pioneering thing? Where is God sending us? Prophets might ask, what word does the Lord have for us right now? What is he revealing by his word and by his spirit? Evangelists might ask, are we reaching people far from God? Always pushing us to think about the lost world. Pastors might ask, are we caring for the flock? Are we feeding them spiritually with the word and with the sacraments? Are we keeping them from error too? Finally, teachers, are we staying true to God's word and are we training the church in good doctrine, in good theology. Paul paints this picture of this fivefold ministry to say that all of these offices work together. All of these contribute to the flourishing of the church. I've known churches that build their staffs around this. I've known churches that build their elder team around the fivefold ministry. Each of their voices is important at the table. But I want you to notice what Paul spends even more time on. Paul spends even more time describing their function. What does the fivefold ministry exist for? Look at verses 12 and 13. He describes all these offices, and then he says, to equip his people, you, all of us, for works of service or works of ministry, same word, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul says that spiritual leadership, ministry professionals, if you will, are called to equip you 
for your ministry. Did you catch that? That our job is to equip you for your ministry, for the ministry and the service that God has called you to. If you haven't already noticed, and and hopefully you have here in our church, we're pretty big on affirming your ministry, on encouraging you in your ministry on your front lines. You've probably heard us talk about that all the time. Those places that you work, live, even play, knowing that God has placed you there for a reason. We're we're proudly part of a, a Reformation tradition that emphasized this thing called the priesthood of all believers, that all of us have our sacred calling, not just the paid professionals. But all of us serve God with our work. This text here may surprise some of you, but this text hopefully informs some of our expectations of the church and of its leadership, what we exist for. For the leaders, our staff, for example, clergy, ministers, this text clarifies what we're for, what our purpose is, what our calling is to equip the saints. Well, what will this equipping result in, according to Paul? What does Paul say? Three things. As the leaders of the church equip the people, as the people of God live out their ministry, this is what happens. The church is built up, the church is unified, and the church matures. The church matures. If you've read Paul, you may know that one of his favorite metaphors for the church is a body, a physical body with hands, feet, legs, eyes, ears, one body with many members all working together. And that's how Paul closes this section of the text, describing this body. Paul says in verse 16, from him, that is from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Friends, when any one person within the body dismisses their own ministry that God's given them, dismisses those good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, the body suffers. When a member of the body dismisses somebody else's ministry, somebody else's service, somebody else's calling, the body suffers and experiences unhealth. And so the point is that those who serve the poor matter. Those who teach kids and youth matter. Those who welcome our visitors and create a hospitable atmosphere matter. Those who teach adults matter. Those who lead us in singing matter. Those who care for our facilities and our finances matter. It all matters as the body works together. As we've seen here in chapter 4, Paul affirms two things. Our unity, our oneness, our common faith, our common hope. And then he affirms our diversity. All the ways that God has gifted us to serve him 
in this world. The reality is that there is as many ministries in our church as there are people sitting in this room. There's as many ministries in our community as there are people listening online and sitting in this room. That's a lot of ministries. Praise God. This is what we're called to. Maybe you're provoked by this text this morning. Maybe God, thinking about this theme of unity, maybe God's inviting you to be reconciled to someone else. Maybe it's someone here. Maybe it's someone in a different church. Being reconciled to a spiritual brother and sister. Maybe somebody's wronged you. Maybe you've wronged somebody. Maybe you have an unreconciled relationship. As I said earlier, in our church and our community, we're committed to this notion that we can do conflict in a way that honors God. And so if you're stuck, if you're needing direction, if you're needing support, please reach out to us. Others of you, maybe you're feeling challenged to embrace your ministry. This thing that you have been equipped and called for. Maybe your expectations of the church, of its leaders, needs to change. But this biblical vision of the church is that everybody plays. Everybody plays the game. No spectators. This is the church. And so maybe you know what God's inviting you to do. Maybe you know how God's inviting you to invest your time. Maybe you have no idea what your next step is. And if that's you especially, we'd love to support you on that journey as well. Let us pray. Lord, we just ask for your help to live in a way, live in a manner that's worthy of the calling that we have received. Lord, we thank you for your church. Thank you for the ways that you've gifted us. Lord, help us now to be your people in this world, bringing you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.